I thank Brother Lester for leading our songs. Good to see you again, Jesse. Good to be with you. Good to be with all of you tonight. Encourage you to get your Bibles out and open to the book of Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2 will be our starting off point tonight. I hope that the lesson tonight will kind of bring uh, a proper conclusion to everything that's been discussed since our, our meeting has begun Wednesday night with all the different speakers. Our title for tonight is Some Things to Realize About Jesus. Some Things to Realize About Jesus. If, we, if you don't understand the reality of Christ, the idea is to realize certain things about our Savior, about our Lord, about the Prince of Peace. I hope that you join with me briefly tonight about some things we should realize about the Son of God. Number one tonight, one thing that we should realize is the joy of His birth. The joy of His birth. We read the book of Luke chapter 2, verse 10 and verse 11. It says, And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. What a joyful day it was when the Lord was born on this earth so that he could begin God's plan of salvation. Now, not a one of us know the day that he was born. The Bible doesn't tell us the day that he was born. Neither does it tell us to celebrate it on a particular day. I think the good attitude of the child of God is we celebrate his birth every single day of the year that we're joyful that he came to this earth and lived and died, as we'll see here in a few moments. In the book of Matthew chapter 1, or verse 21, when Mary was learning that she was going to bring the Son of God in, uh, to this earth through the miraculous birth, it says in verse 21 of Matthew chapter 1, that she will bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from what? Save his people from their sins. And so when you and I begin to try to bring Jesus into reality, to bring it into focus, and to bring it all together, one thing that you and I should realize is the joy of, of his birth. But secondly tonight, not only should we realize the joy of his birth, but we should also realize the value of his life while he was on this earth. Now if I were to ask you tonight, why did Jesus come to this earth? Why did he come to live on this earth? Does the Bible answer that question for us? And indeed it does. In the book of Luke 19 and verse 10, by his own admission, through his own mouth, he says, The Son of Man is come to seek and do what? Seek and save that which is lost. You and I would be lost if he wasn't born on this earth and to live on this earth. Jesus also said in John 10 and verse 10 and near the area of when him announcing that I am the good shepherd. You recall that there in John 10, 10 through 15 area that the good shepherd is going to lay down his life. Jesus said in the book of John 10 and verse 10 that I have come to give you life and to give it more how? And to give it more abundantly. Jesus came to live on this earth so that you and you and myself so that we could have life ourselves. Over in our Bibles, in the book of Philippians 2, if you turn over there with me. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. I will not read all of those verses tonight, but think with me about a couple of them, a couple of statements within this. Philippians 2, verses 1 through 4, encourages the child of God not to be selfish with their time, but to be thinking about others most of the time. 
There are times when you and I personally have to come first, but most of the time, as we see in verse 4, we should be looking out for the things for the betterment of others. Then the Apostle Paul gives us an example of how this works. He says in verse number 5, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made of himself no reputation, took upon him the form of his servant, it was made in the likeness of men, and being found in the fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient even to what? Even to the death of the cross. When Jesus was born, and as he got older, he knew what his life was all about. He knew that his life was going to end very cruelly, as we'll see here in a few moments. But the value of his life on this earth for you and for me is immense. It cannot be calculated. Also in the book of Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. We learn that Jesus is identified not only as a priest, but he is what? He is the high priest. In Hebrews 4, verse 14, seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, we'll talk about that later on, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have a high priest, is the force of verse 15, we have a high priest who has been touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. This is an over looked part of the value of his life on this earth. He lived on this earth just like you and I do and understands what it's like to live on this earth. We are not alone. He was tempted like you and I are today. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He was tired. He was sleepy. He had happy and joyous times, but he also had sad times, like we were reminded of one of the brothers this morning. John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus did what? Jesus wept. He knows what it's like to not feel well. He knows what it's like to have a lot of people around you pressing in on you. He understands what it's like to have friends who are sick and friends who pass away. He understands every aspect of your life. That's the value of his life on this earth and how it values you. But let's move on also in the book of Romans chapter 5. Something else to realize besides the joy of his birth and the value of his life on this earth, one thing I also need to realize is the agony of his death. The agony of his death. Romans chapter 5 and verse 10 The apostle writes, for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. You know what the word reconciled means? It means to make peace with. It means to take two sides that are at odds, like reconciling your bank statement, if you still do that. Taking two sides at odds and bringing them together at peace. You and I have been brought together to God. Something accomplished that. And what was it that accomplished that? According to verse 10, we are reconciled to God by the death of his son. By the death of his son. Think about that. Think about what it took to bring us to God, according to 1 Peter 3, in verse 18, that language there, to bring you to God, to bring me to God, what it took. Now, our brother who took care of the Lord's Supper table this morning made a very good point. We're going to expound on that just for a few moments, if you don't care. Think about 
what Jesus had to go through, the agony of his death, so that you and I could be reconciled to God. Before he even was crucified, he was mocked, ridiculed, and made fun of. His peers slapped him. His peers spit on him. His peers, those men of his lack age, punched him and hit him with rods. He had all of his clothes taken off. By the way, the Son of God said, the foxes have dens and the birds have nests, but the Son of God has nowhere to do what? Has nowhere to lay his head. Perhaps the only possession that he had that he could call his were his clothes. Those were stripped off, and on him was put a scarlet robe, and into his hand he stepped there, and mockingly they said, Hail, King of the Jews. What they did mockingly was correct. He was the king, not only of the Jews, but of the world. He had a crown of thorns placed upon his head. When's the last time you saw thorns grow in the shape of a crown? Somebody had to take those thorns, one inch thick thorns perhaps, and fashion them into the shape of a crown to be able to be placed on the head of the Son of God. Now you and I are not naive enough to think that they gingerly placed that on his head so as not to cause any pain for our Savior. It was smashed onto his head, was it not? Before any man was crucified, he was scourged. It was part of every crucifixion. Don't make the mistake, don't allow somebody to make the mistake to say that Jesus was whipped 40 times minus one. That was a Jewish law. He was crucified and he was scourged under what kind of law? Under Roman law. And by telling, by telling the, how infamous that he was and how hated he was, there's no telling the beating that he took at the whipping post. Again, all of his clothes would be stripped off, tied to a whipping post, and some man in history would have to take what was called a flagellum, and at the end of that were three pieces of leather, and at the end of those pieces of leather were sharp pieces of pottery or rock and raked over the back of our Savior. Time and time again. History tells us that many men died as a result of the scourging, never having made it to the cross. But he lived through it. And as a result, no doubt his back was torn to shreds, pieces of skin hanging off, falling off on the ground, bleeding, bruised. But this is not the end. This is not the worst part. Now he's called upon to bear his own cross to the place of the skull, Golgotha. And even though our artists of the day have us think that the cross was this way, most likely it was in the form of a T, like this. And there's only one logical way to carry a cross like this, and that's over your back, like this. And with every step, as we've seen, the old wooden cross would drag across those fresh wounds made from the scourging. As you, as a good Bible student, know, he was unable to bear the cross all the way. Simon and Cyrene had to be contracted, if you will, chosen to bear the cross the rest of the way. But the worst is yet to come. Let me ask you something. I, I try to put myself in his shoes as best I can. When you're carrying the cross to the place that you're going to be crucified, what do you think goes through somebody's mind? What do you think goes through your mind if you're in that position? You may be different than me, but I tell you what I'd be thinking. That this is going to hurt. This is going to hurt. Somebody's going to put what we might say spikes 
in between, in between the bones, probably in my wrist and through my feet, to affix me to a wooden cross so that I can hang in front of the masses. When they got to the place of crucifixion, they laid the cross on the ground. And lay the one that was going to be crucified on the cross, stretch out the arms, perhaps put the feet together. Somebody in history had to take a hammer, some sort of a mallet, and put nails, spikes, through the Savior's wrist and hand, or in feet. How do you think that felt? Now again, our artists have done a, mis- a misservice, a disservice to us to try to get us to think that when Jesus was crucified, of course he had two thieves being crucified on either side of him, that if you wanted to go see him, you'd have to look way up into the sky to see him. That's not true. By the time the cross was dropped into the hole, causing pain for the person on the cross, his feet may have been a foot off the ground. Giving opportunity for everybody to walk by and make fun of him, and spit on him, and slap him, probably a naked body. But as the brother pointed out this morning, the crucifixion itself wasn't what caused death. That's correct. One of the forgotten prophecies of this is Psalm 22. And if you go read Psalm 22 again, you can find out. Not only were there physical ramifications of the crucifixion, they were mental ones as well. His heart melted him in the midst of his bowels. His heart was breaking as he hung there on the cross and died for the sins of mankind. His tongue clave, cleaves to his what? Cleaves to his jaws. One thing a person does who's being crucified is sweat and sweat profusely and sweat to the point they no longer have anything to sweat out. What did they give our Savior on the cross to drink when he cried, I thirst? Cup of cold water? No, a sponge filled with vinegar. And you know that our Savior died in about the space of six hours, but he died because probably he could breathe in, but he couldn't breathe out. Does that bother us anymore? Does that bother me anymore? Have we lived our life so sheltered and we live in a life, a world full of sin and sorrow? We no longer think about those things. This is what a man, our Savior, had to do is agony, so that you and I can live life. That's pretty tough, isn't it? I need to think about those things. I need to think about those things more often. About what he went through. The agony of his death. When I think about the reality of Jesus, and what I should realize, there's a joyful attached to his birth. There's a value that's attached to his life while he lived on this earth, but there was complete and utter agony for him as he died on the cross. What the soldier did, of course, when he came by, saw that Jesus was already dead out of spite. What did he do? Speared Jesus on the side and forthwith came blood and water. But thankfully the story doesn't end here. There's a couple other things we ought to realize about Jesus in addition to these three. The next one, as you turn your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 2, and in verse 8, is the power of his resurrection. And I intentionally selected that word power because I'm as guilty as anybody else. We, at certain times of the year, we generally in the world talk about the birth of Christ and how thankful we are for it, although we should be thankful every day for it, and, and talk about it in celebratory tones every day of the year. We talk a lot about his birth around the holiday season, do we not? 
And we talk a lot about his death. In fact, we memorialize it every first day of the week so that we can remember what he went through on our behalf. But let me tell you, if Jesus came to this earth and was born on this earth and he died, but he stayed in the tomb, you and I would be lost. That's the power of his resurrection. And that's why Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 8, simply to remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead. You need to remember this, that Jesus was raised from the dead. Paul said in the Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10, he wrote about the power of the resurrection. The power of the resurrection. Now where in your Bibles does it talk about the results of a non-resurrection. If somebody came to say, hey, I, I know the Bible talks about this. Where does it talk about the results of a non-resurrection? The answer is in the resurrection chapter. And what chapter would that be? It would be 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Turn over there with me and notice the results of a non-resurrection. You remember the Sadducees, they went around talking that there was no resurrection of the dead and caused folks to give up on their faith, make shipwreck of their faith. We have notes about that in the Bible. Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 12, where he writes, But if Christ be preached, he rose from the dead. How say some of you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? Let's make a list here. And if Christ is not risen, then guess what? Our preaching is vain. I might as well just sit down, shut up, don't even talk, because what I have to say has no value whatsoever. Even if I say what's from the Word of God, there is no value to it. It's all vain. He also says in verse 14 that your faith is in vain. That faith that you worked so hard to build up as a result of your study of God's Word and going through all life's experiences, all vain. No value whatsoever. He says, yea, and we are found false witnesses of God. The we is Paul, Peter, the other apostles who went about talking about the resurrected Christ. They're all false witnesses. Now in verse number 17. If Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. You are still where at? You're still in your sins. You know the sins that you thought were washed away in this baptism back here? You still own those. You still are the one who owns those sins. Then it says in verse 18, that they which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. You know that funeral that you went to here a few weeks ago, perhaps, of one who had been baptized, was living a faithful life, and the, the preacher could say that so-and-so, brother so-and-so, sister so-and-so, die with hope, and to be with God, nope, no more, if there is no resurrection. Verse 19, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most what? Miserable. What a miserable life you and I would live if there was no resurrection. They might jot these verses down. In the book of 1 Peter chapter 1 and in verse 3. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. When Peter is opening this particular letter, he says in verse number, th verse number 3 of chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again unto what kind of a hope? Lively hope. You might highlight the word lively. Lively hope. What puts the power into the hope? What makes the hope lively? By the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What would an awful thing would be to have a dead hope? Hope to go nowhere. But our hope is alive, is it? It's alive. 
If what makes it alive is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If further on in this same book, chapter 3 and verse 21. 1 Peter 3 and verse 21. Did you realize that this, of course, is where the Bible talks about Noah and his family being saved by water? Okay? You know what? You know how water saved Noah and his family? We read in the book of Genesis chapter 7 that the water bore up the ark. That's how water saved Noah and his family. Now, by the way, does the Bible ever indicate that you and I are saved by water? The answer is no. It does not say that you and I are saved by water. We do not and will not teach water salvation. We teach that we are saved not by water, but we're saved by what? Baptism. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21. We do a good job of quoting 1 Peter 3 verse 21. Baptism doth also now save us. We have a bad habit of skipping over parenthetical statements and anything that's after it. The parenthetical statement is very important in 1 Peter 3, verse 21. Baptism is not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. You're not coming up here to get a bath after a hot day of mowing the grass because you're dirty. We're putting away the filth of the soul. But what it actually is is the answer of the good conscience toward God. You think back to the time when you were baptized, if you have been. Okay, the reason you were is because your conscience began to knock. Your conscience began to tell you, this is what the Word of God teaches. This is what the Word of God says. I need to be baptized. The only way to stop that knocking of the conscience is to answer it. And you answer it by saying that I want to be baptized. But don't forget about the last statement in this verse. What puts the power in baptism? How does baptism save us? How does baptism save you? How does baptism save anybody? The power behind it is what? Is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Don't ever forget. Don't ever forget about the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But there's one final piece to this puzzle. Something else that we need to realize, a final thing that you and I need to realize, in addition to the joy of His birth, the value of his life on this earth, the agony of his death, and the power of his resurrection, and that is the advantage of his ascension. The advantage of his ascension. You recall with me the book of Acts chapter 1, do you not? Verses 9 through 11, as Jesus was giving some final commendations, commands to his apostles to wait in Jerusalem for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And of course, they did that. But in verse 9 it says, And when they had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up. A cloud received him out of their sight. And he looked up steadfastly toward heaven as he went up. Behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, You men of Galilee, why are you stand here gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you've seen him go into heaven. Do you recall that when Jesus died on the cross, there were several things that occurred. Dead people rose up and started walking around. There was darkness on the face of the earth for three days, but three hours. But there was something else that occurred. Something happened at the temple. You remember something happened at the temple? The veil of the temple was rent and what? Was torn in two. There's more to that than just the destruction of the veil of the temple. There's a lot of information that you and I need to latch on to. And it is this, that Jesus in his death gave us access to God. Did you realize that you and I, if we lived under the Old Testament and sinned, we'd have to go find a priest. 
Hey, I need a priest. I need a priest right now so that I could go and make sacrifice for my sin. But you know, Peter indicates that we are a chosen people, that we are a peculiar people, but he also says that we are a royal what? That we are royal priesthood. You and I, we serve a king, that is being Jesus, but we also serve as our own what? We serve as our own priest. Our high priest, just like under the law of Moses, has now entered into the holy of holies. That is heaven. That when you and I say a prayer and end our prayer by saying, in Jesus' name, that prayer is made possible by the death of Jesus, by Him having the veil of the temple rent in two, so that you and I can gain immediate and consistent access to our Father. Now, what's He doing in heaven? Is He just sitting there relaxing? Doing anything for us? There's an advantage for the child of God that Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, in verse 5, we read from the pen of Paul to the evangelist, 1 Timothy 2 and verse 5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Jesus is serving as our mediator. Not everybody's mediator, but the Christians, the Christians' mediator. He mediates between you and God. He works on behalf of you, for, God, for you, in front of God. We also learn in the book of Romans chapter 8 and in verse 34, Romans 8 and verse 34, some of the most beautiful language in the Bible is found near the end of Romans chapter 8 about what shall separate us from the love of God, the love of Christ. But just one verse prior to that, Romans 8 and verse 34, it says, Who is he that condemns? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is at the right hand of God, who also does what? Makes intercession for us. In fact, the Hebrew writer said in Hebrews 7 and verse 25, He ever lives to do what? He ever lives to make intercession for us. What a beautiful thing that is. The advantage of His ascension. Now, one final advantage you might think of. You know, denominationally speaking today, yeah, there's thousands of denominations all over the world. Most of them have central headquarters. Most of them have national or global gatherings where they all get together and, oh, this year we're going to focus on X, Y, Z. Or we're going to teach this on any given subject of the Word of God. But they have a hierarchy of people. It goes all the way up to one person who's the head of a certain denomination. Let me ask you something. When that head of that denomination dies, that denomination is therefore rendered what? Headless. Any of you ever cut a chicken's head off? I haven't. Don't care to, but I've heard some stories about it. That once you cut the chicken's head off, it still does what? It runs around for a little while until it finally peters out, I guess. But we have an old state or an old cliche now. He's running around like a chicken with his head cut off. There are denominations these days when their head dies. That's what they are. They're running around like a chicken with their head cut off because their head has died. Who's the head of the church? Well, it's Jesus. We learned that in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 31. Wherever the head is, that is where our headquarters are. Is our head ever going to die? Well, he's already died. 
that he's already raised from the dead and has ascended back into heaven where he sits at the right hand of God working for you and me, he will never die. Therefore, the Lord's church will never be rendered headless. He's in our headquarters. The same place that you and I have our citizenship. According to the book of Philippians chapter 3, our citizenship is where at? It's in heaven. That's where we all should long to go. Those are some things that I need to realize about Jesus. The reality is that he came to this earth, and what a joyful time that was, to have a child born unto us this day. He was our Savior. The life that he lived was so that you and I could have life and to have it more abundantly. He died a cruel, agonizing death so that you and I could live. He rose from the dead after having been in the grave for three days so that he could defeat death, paving the way for you and I one day to also be able to do the same thing, to defeat death, to overcome it. And now he sits at the right hand of God as your brother, as your joint heir, working on behalf of you. What a wonderful story that is. That's why that's called the gospel. You see that in the book of 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 6. This is the gospel by which we are saved. It's the good news. What better news is there than these five realizations about our Savior? Now tonight, if you're with us, you've never rendered obedience. I hope that you understand that Jesus came to this earth for you. We learn in the book of Romans chapter 5 that he came just in time, just at the right time, the due time, and died for sinners. Even though we were still sinners, God demonstrated his love in the giving of his son. He died for you. Gave his life up so that you could live. We hope tonight that you'll see that just like he was buried in the ground, that you and I are buried in the water, that together we can rise to walk in the newness of life. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Have your sins washed away like it was done for Saul, Acts 22, verse 16. And that you can be added to the Lord's church as the untold millions have done over the years, Acts 2, verse 47. But that's just the beginning of a brand new life, of a child of God. And as a child of God, if you've walked waywardly, you're out doing things, you're doing things that you know you shouldn't be doing, thinking things, saying things that are not Christ-like. It's time to renew your relationship with Him. If it's something private, do before you do anything else tonight, bow your head and pray to God that those sins may be wiped away. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, the Bible says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a wonderful deal, if you will, that we have Build in for the child of God by the death of the Son. Tonight, if you need to be baptized, if you need to confess sin, we want to help you right now as we stand and as we sing.